Hi everyone, it's Thursday, September 11th, 2008. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neurobiology Podcast. Today we have with us Tim Lewis, who's an associate professor in the Department of Mathematics at UC Davis. Thanks, Tim, Hello. for being here. Good to Hi. Be here. Around the room we've got Todd Troyer. Hello. Rama Ratnam. Hi, so what? Uh, Fidel Santa Maria. Hi. Charles Wilson. Hello. And Ramana Dodla. Hello. Hi. So, Tim, um, Whenever we have a computational neuroscientist with us, it's always interesting to hear about their convoluted path from their particular computational discipline into neuroscience. So you're a mathematician working closely with a prominent research group that studies the physiology of cortical circuits. Can you tell us what your particular story is? Um, I probably have an atypical one. So I started off as an undergrad in uh, physiology and physics with a double major at McGill. And um, then I not knowing what to do after my undergrad, I ended up doing a master's in physiology at McGill in cardiac electrophysiology. Uh, but at, when I was there, I started doing a lot of mathematical modeling, and I got more interested in the mathematical modeling than the experiments, because they frustrated me. <laughs> and um, so I decided to, to go do my PhD at the University of Utah, um, studying the mathematics of propagation in, uh, of electrical propagation in cardiac tissue. When I finished that, I decided I wanted to branch out somewhere uh, new, and neuroscience presented itself as an excellent source of great, fun math problems from the dynamical systems viewpoint. So I did a, um, a postdoc with John Rinzel at NYU, um, and then I was lucky enough to get a position in the math department at, at Davis after that. So, like many researchers, you're trying to understand synchrony by looking at synchronization properties of neuron pairs and then generalizing this to networks of increasing size. Could you um, talk us through some of the rationale and caveats of your approach and maybe tell us a little bit about your approach? Okay. Um, so what I try to do is try to create a framework, um, a mathematical framework to understand synchronization or what the mechanism of synchronization in um, in neural networks and one of the tools that I find very useful is, is something called a theory of weakly coupled oscillators which uh, assumes that this the intrinsic properties of the cells dynam uh, dominate the dynamics for single cycles but over many many cycles the weak input can shift the phases in a systematic way to either lead to synchronization uh, between neurons or um, some other phase lock state, some other um, synchronization that's out of phase. So yeah, and so you do a lot. You know, a lot of the a lot of the simple version is having two neurons, right? Mm -hmm. And so you have you have big. Is it is it the same? How different is it? I mean, it's. It's, there's often you hear, well, this all kind of works. It's a little bit more complicated, but it kind of works. Uh, or yeah, we that's, see that's it in bigger really models. But it, is that just because you 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 see it in simulation, or how how well is our pathways worked out in terms of rigorous generalizations? Yeah. So I said first off, I, I should should say um, mainly uh, my my main reason to work on cell pairs is. One, it's easier to understand, and I think if we don't understand how cell pairs synchronize, then we might not understand, have, have hope at understanding how large networks synchronize. 
Um, the other, the other aspect is that uh, my experimental collaborators at Brown, uh, Barry Connors' lab, they work on, cell, on slices where they use paired cell recording, and that allows um, them to get basically a two-cell network by injecting current into just two cells, and we can study the synchronization of those two cells and how they synchronize and compare to the, math, the mathematical models and the mathematical theory. Um, so we can understand how these, we can understand the biophysical mechanisms of synchronization in the two cells. Once we understand that at a deep level, then you could jump up to the network level. Are there these exact same mechanisms? Certainly not the exact same mechanisms, but many of the properties of the two cell case will carry over to the um, many, many neuron models. So, so, some of the time. So, Fidel. So, but I have a question related to to what you just said, right? That you said that well, we can understand. We have to understand two pair, one pair of of neurons <coughs> to then understand the tissue, right? But in cardiac uh, science, right, they have uh, differential equation models that models the entire tissue, right? Like, and they don't have to understand the physiology of individual cells. Um, well, in, right? the, in the sinus node. Uh, the, uh -huh. the cells are um, you. You have you know small smaller cells that are that are coupled. Right, but the, I, I'm talking about like the way propagation in 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 tissue, right? Yeah, oh, like right. So in, in the simplified models of like having a ring of cardiac cells and and how to understand. Yeah, um, so they use reaction diffusion. Right. Equations. Exactly. Right. So so in that case, you you've got. Um, smallish cells, and what I mean by smallish is this, the length of the cell is a smaller length scale than the diffusive, uh, the spatial scale of diffusion. Mm -hmm. okay. And you can actually uh, use, use some uh, techniques called homogenization to show that uh, the, the discrete tissue, uh, so, so you can capture the dynamics very well by by just looking at and just smearing out the, the, the local properties and uh, instead of looking at single cells, look at the, the average properties in an area. And from, from, from the single cell diffusive, or, you know, single cells coupled by gap junction, you can, you can smooth out all of that and just say the average diffusion between this chunk of tissue and this chunk of tissue is, is this much. So it can you can generate a PDE, right? But do you, do you think that equation. can be applied to the cortex, the cerebral? Uh, so so uh, in in some sense, yes. Uh, so you uh, so in cardiac tissue, you have nearest neighbor coupling, uh -huh. right? So uh, if you if you do the right averaging, special right. averaging, you go to a, a diffusion equation, a reaction diffusion equation, um, whereas uh, inhibitory cells in the cortex are coupled to not only nearest neighbors, or but excitatory, right? A, a like lateral connectivity between cortex. Oh, you're, so you're not just talking about electrical. Oh, I'm looking at everything. Okay. So, so maybe I can I can answer it in, ter in terms of. Uh, yeah, not only electrical connectivity. Well, I'm going to answer that one. Fidel, no. No, yeah. no, you're not going to be able to write a PDE for the well, whole cortex. Yeah. yeah, because everyone knows that it's going to be an integral <laughs> equation, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, so, so uh, 
what I was going to say is different than what Charlie was going to say. <laughs> yes! <laughs> is, is that in, instead of a diffusion, mm. uh, your, your, or sorry, a local diffusion, you're going to get an, an integral equation that's uh, non-local diffusion mm. Mm. Uh, when you smooth, you know, smooth things out mm. using the average. So that's for electrical coupling. For, for, for chemical coupling, people are using continuum models all, all the time. Mm. Um, and I, I think w your, your question was, can you can you do this? Yeah. This is a question. And mathematically, yeah, sure you can. <laughs> uh, is it appropriate? At, um, it might not be quantitatively accurate, but it, but these models um, can give you a lot of qualitative insights into what is happening in in the cortex. And you can develop some general principles. This is kind of what I was saying about the a mathematical framework to interpret uh, uh, experimental results. But I thought that I mean, doesn't it? It seems that there is a continuum, a natural continuum uh, framework for the problem that you're talking about. That's a continuum in phase. You have a density. You have a large population of cells. And they're oscillating. Um, your assumptions are they're oscillating together, and you're looking at phase coupling, and you look at the phase density, right? How how many cells are operating at what phase relative uh, to all the other cells, to or some arbitrary phase? And synchronization is they all have the same relative phase, right? And complete asynchrony is that you have a flat distribution of phases, and your state space is now the distribution of the density of phases. And so you can look at an infinite number of, uh, you know, continuum model of an infinite number of cells, uh, a smear out in phase, in terms of your state, not in space. Um, so, uh, yeah, so, but then you'd still have to um, model coupling some, yeah. right? So, uh, how are you going to model? Well, like, like so when, when you do these these uh, yeah, you have to models, you uh, you generally assume all all coupling, let's say, uh -huh. and the, the uh, influence of, of all the other cells is kind of a mean field input right. into yeah. another cell, um, or you assume that there's some sort of um, continuum that's has you know the footprint, and you've got a continuum that's spatially. Right. So, the, so, all, so the, the, the only the only thing would be all to all. The only thing that natural to do in that framework is all to all coupling. So it's very maybe too simple in yeah, terms of the coupling yeah. end of things. That's not interesting. Well, but there are a couple of other ways that it's maybe too simple. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about was, um, you know, in the experiments that you're doing that you are comparing your model to, the cells are oscillators operating at approximately constant uh, frequency and and you sweep the frequency range slowly enough so that so that is approximately true all the time and um, the fast spiking cells and the LTS cells in the cortex are sort of not doing that right I mean they're they're normally not going at relatively constant frequency there they have signals superimposed on them. So it's, it seems to me that there's a there's an aspect of this, a temporal aspect of it, that has yet to be addressed. You know, how quickly do the changes in synchrony happen? 
quick enough to keep up with the changes in input? Do they lag behind the changes of input? So I guess to the cortex physiologist, which I'm not, I don't claim to be, but um, I think to a cortex physiologist, uh, there would be a question of whether the, these oscillator models apply to the cortex when it isn't in a slice and the you know and, the, and there's all these crazy signals running around doing what they're doing. Yeah. What do you think about that? That I mean, you have a notion of it because you know how quickly the cells shift their synchrony, how quickly they go in and out of synchrony. Can they follow the kind of signals that are interesting? Um, so. There's various ways to, to answer, answer that question. And, and one is kind of backing off the claims that uh, that oh, these oscillations are important, <laughs> important uh, for oscillations that are seen in vivo. And we're just probing the system, trying to understand more um, uh, more of the biophysical Okay, I grant elements. you, you're safe. You're yeah, safe. There's the safe you. answer. <laughs> or there, there's... The, the, the other, the you other can only use it so, once. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> I played my card. Um, uh, in terms of fast spiking neurons in layer four, these guys are being uh, uh, received lots of input from the thalamus. Um, so chances are that those those guys are um, the the synchrony that you see from this weak coupling. Is probably not important in the fast spiking neurons, uh, but they, they they seem to have a fundamentally a, a different role than presenting the, these these oscillations. Uh, it's more, that their role might be more of a feed forward inhibition role in the in usual sense of how we think inhibition inhibition acts, um, and and electrocoupling might not be there to synchronize oscillations, but might be there to um, syn synchronize the activity when they receive input. You can think, think about electrocoupling as um, acting uh, as, as uh, coincidence detectors too. Right? Uh, if, if two cells receive, if, if they're not oscillatory and they receive input at the same time, then say they're likely to fire. They receive input at different times. Well, then one cell acts like an extra leakage um, or a load uh, than the other cell. So the same current, uh, same input that you you get uh, to fire both of them if they was in both cell wouldn't perhaps allow that single neuron to fire. Right? So so temporal and uh, spatially correlated input might be what these cells are trying to respond to. Um, and then also, you, you think, think maybe electrocoupling could act as a, an inhibitory gain mechanism. So the input comes in if it's uh, not spatially and, and locally correlated, maybe the cells won't fire at all, or maybe a few cells will fire here and there. But if it's spatially temporally correlated, say to one group of, of fast spiking neurons, they'll fire. And then the uh, current, the current will diffuse from the spiking cells into the neighboring cells. They'll fire, and then you can get this wave of activation of, um, of fast spiking neurons, and you, so then that'll induce this huge 
inhibition that all cells and local to that will see. So, it, it, you know, there, there's different roles that <laughs> that different cell populations uh, can see. The LTS cells, on the other hand, don't receive um, a cortical input. Um, they seem to be responsive to, more responsive to neuromodulators, many neuromodulators, compared to fast mycin neurons. Um, and, uh, uh, and they're slower, spikes, the spiking is slower. All of that suggests that they might be responsible for um, synchronizing in more the way that, that we're talking about when we talk about coupled oscillators. So in, per, in particular behavioral states, when there's a certain uh, neuromodulator present, you've got these cells in an oscillatory state, they synchronize, and then that, the inhibition coming from those LTS cells could modulus, do subthreshold modulation on the excitatory cells and the uh, fast spiking neurons to put some sort of context now, the usual way we think about gamma oscillations, putting some context um, on, on the, the other cells um, when they're receiving input from outside that global circuitry. How does so, it do that? Do yeah. That? If the fast spiking cells are, are sort of far from equilibrium, I mean, usually the, the weakly coupled oscillator theory is addressing a close equilibrium state, either that the system has been allowed to reach whatever kind of phase oh, relationship yeah, is possible. Yeah, okay. So the relaxation or, time to that it, or it is, Or it is moving slowly in that direction. But could we imagine a generalization of it that could handle the sorts of things you were just talking about? You give a big bang to one piece of it, you look and see how that ripples out to the rest. Is there a theory of... Uh, Non-weekly couple of oscillators. <laughs> well, even if they, they could still be a little bit weak. They're just not. They're just uh, reacting to a fast-changing inputs and don't get a chance to get close to their equilibrium state. So mm -hmm. maybe far from equilibrium, couple of oscillators is what I was thinking about. So how does a, you know, let's say we need we need that. Don't we need that? We need a mathematics of that. How do uh, we get that kind of mathematics? So one of the things that the theory of weak couple oscillators is based on is the, is the linearity of the system. So you're thinking that, as I was saying, the intrinsic um, oscillatory dynamics dominate. So you're thinking about linearizing around that, that limit cycle and, um, and that any kind of small perturbative input can be summated to get the full effect uh, on that neuron. As soon as you, you have strong input or strong coupling, that linearity breaks down and you're back to your fully crazy nonlinear system, which are generally very hard to understand. The other possible way uh, that, so one, one way that people are looking at uh, coupled oscillators has its drawbacks too, but um, it can be used for strong input. And that is, um, you still use the phase response curve, but you do it for a particular type of, of input. Um, let, let's, say, let's say some fast synaptic input going from one cell to another. Okay. So when one cell fires, it can have a big effect, a big phase shift on the, the other cell that it's coupled to, let's say. Um, but that cell, after its phase shift, it relaxes very quickly back down to its limit cycle. 
right? So there's no long memory effects. So if you now calculate the, the phase response curve using that exact stim stimulus, then you can start to think about, well, if you have these two cells interacting, um, that phase response curve could help predict synchronization rhythms. But you need, if you, if you want to use the mathematical theory underlying it, um, you, you need something about the, the linear summation of, of things. Because So the, pro the problem is this. You're, you're saying, okay, I want to model a barrage of input or many inputs from the response of a single input. And that's extremely hard to do unless the system is behaving linearly where you can just add everything together and then get your, your, your total effect. Um, so, so in the, the, the case of this strong, stronger input, your linearity comes from very fast relaxation back down to the lens cycle. So you perturb it, you get the phase shift, and boom, it's right back down so to the lens cycle, but at a different phase. So the next input hitting the same lens cycle. Exactly. But that's how it works because you integrate it to derive the equations of uh, of weekly couple of oscillators. You integrate from zero to T, capital T, which is the cycle, and then you assume that there are no long-term uh, effects, right? Like very long time constant currents or anything like that that accumulate over multiple cycles, right? Right. That will that will mess up, or, or maybe I mean maybe you can still do it, but it will will make it a lot more complicated to to yeah, write yeah. down the equations, right? Right. You, you'll you'll have to include some other variables, and the beauty of the theory is that you collapse everything down to each os oscillator down to its phase, single variable. Mm -hmm. um, and in in the uh, stronger PRC case, the, um, uh, where the cell uh, the system collapses down back down to the limit cycle very quickly after it, it sh shifts its phase, there you can think of it as an uh, inherently discrete time process. Right? You say the cell receives input, shifts its phase, and then receives another input, shifts its phase. So you've got discrete time there. So, so there, there's your possible extension to stronger coupling. But that has a drawback too, because now you think about um, one cell not getting input from one other cell, that's fairly slow, but lots of other cells at, at a whole bunch of different times. So when we say the cell quickly relaxes back down to its limit cycle, what, is, what does that mean specifically, right? It just means quickly enough so that it's close enough to its limit cycle before the next input comes in. But if you have two inputs coming in, one right after another, one, one right after another, then your, your system will break down because you have nonlinearities coming into play that aren't described by the phase response curve. So the big, it seems to me the big attraction of this approach is that it offers an arithmetic for synaptic integration. Then the, the idea is that cells are on their phase cycle and inputs come in and uh, move them in time. And uh, that way we can say three inputs came in instead of thinking of the inputs as making the cell uh, three increments closer to spiking threshold, we think of it in voltage, we think of it making three increments closer to spiking threshold in time. And, um, and so the problem, the, one of the most fundamental problems in neuroscience, which we pretend is solved and we 
explain it to students as if it was a solved problem, but which isn't a solved problem, is how do cells react to their inputs to make an output that means something. And so we need a, we need a scheme, and the scheme we usually tell students is that they add their uh, excitations and subtract the inhibitions that occur close to each other in time. How close? Well, within the sort of membrane relaxation time of each other. So then those things are doing a kind of arithmetic. And so the cell can add and subtract and whatever kinds of other things. Multiplication and division by by uh, concatenating those and eventually it becomes a little computational machine. When the when the cell doesn't behave like that, and oscillating cells don't behave like that, they're going to fire anyway. It's a question of when. Then this offers the, an alternative, which is we think of excitation and inhibition as just nudges forward and backward in time. And then the cell can do arithmetic on those. Yeah. Um, but actually, neither, neither scheme is is accurate from the point of view of biophysics. If we make a biophysical model of a neuron, it doesn't do that. From a rest state, it doesn't do that kind of arithmetic. And you're telling us that real oscillating neurons don't do that kind of arithmetic either. They're kind Uh, of time arithmetic. At least... Sorry, say that? Real oscillating neurons, you're saying, are are not actually going to do that kind of time arithmetic that the theory says they will do either because they're going to end up getting inputs that are too big that exceed the range of this linear. So this this is my question. So he's actually not saying that they won't do that. He is saying that they violate the theory. But it seems as it stays now, and this is what I wanted to ask him, it's unclear whether violating the theory violates the functional story that you just said. So they may never be able to prove that the story goes. But so, so here's my question: Is are people just taking realistic models, applying these ideas in these non-justified settings, and then look at what's going on? I mean, you can think of the PRC as a first-order analysis and do the second-order kernel and see how far off it is. Is it bad or is it good? And just take a model and simulate it, see what happens. So, are people doing that? What's what's the answer? Or, so, for these uh, the large input um, PRCs that I was talking about, people are looking at uh, second order phase response curves. For the small input, um, it's actually hard to look at high order correction terms. At least I haven't figured out a way of, a way of doing it. And I don't think anyone else has uh, uh, published that that I know of. Um, but, but yeah, so one, one thing that, uh, that Todd pointed out is that some of the, the answers that you get from the theory of weak coupled oscillators are only mathematically valid for sufficiently weak coupling. Right? But qualitatively, it, the, the results carry over to moderate and sometimes even large coupling. So if you're only after qualitative answers, then you have some, something, some, a theory that's satisfying. Of course, uh, we'd be interested in the quantitative answer because the brain, the neuron has to be coming up with a quantitative answer mm-hmm. to its synaptic arithmetic. So we'd like, I mean, as the as the synaptic summation in time becomes nonlinear, then the neuron is becoming a different kind of computing machine. 
Perhaps a better computing Maybe. machine than something that's linear. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, that's often said. Yet when we go to, to make computing machines out of neuron-like things, we always end up picking integrated fire neurons or something to use. The most linear things we can to do They're that. pretty non-linear. <laughs> they have a, the fire part of it. They have that fire part. That, <laughs> that, that is a huge it's a, part it's a big fast linearity, right? <laughs> but Fidel and, Fidel and I were, were talking earlier today, and we were mentioning visual systems neuroscience and how successful they've been, and you're just using linear theory for a long, long time. Um, and, and that gives you a lot of information about how the system is working. It's missing a lot of stuff, but the basic framework seems to be good in and, certain contexts. Right, and the fact that the neurons behave at least linearly in a very simplified scenario, right? When you anesthetize animals and you just black out everything except for a little dot on in space, you can classify neurons linearly. So the uh, fundamentals, I mean the neuronal substrate, is there mm-hmm. to at least process linearly. But what we were saying is that, well, maybe when you're being chased by a gorilla <laughs> in the jungle, maybe you're not using that linear part, maybe. So, Ramana, you're just going to start. So, a fascinating connection between the weakly coupled uh, neuronal models and the uh, coupled oscillators. Um, is trying to understand the emergence of synchrony as well as asynchrony. Now, we know that identical coupled oscillators, uh, they can only synchronize. I mean, coupled oscillator theory like Kuramoto or Strogatz models. They can only can interrupt. They can only phase lock. Yeah, so, right. So, so not, not synchronized right. in, in the zero right. phase right. sense. Okay, yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. so, um, so we, we know that, so you seem to be saying uh, that at least in some of your simulations, that two identical coupled neurons, uh, weakly coupled neurons, could lead to asynchronous firing. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. It depends okay. on the phase response curve as well as the type of coupling. I mean, the easiest thing to. to the cu- coupling is a, a weakly coupling, right? As you said, weakly coupled, electrical coupling. Yeah, and I'm thinking. Oh, so when you say coupling, do you mean electrical coupling? Electrical coupling. Okay. Uh-huh. So, yeah, the f- physiologists always use coupling to mean electrical coupling, whereas a lot of theorists and mathematicians say coupling just any kind of connections. Right. So, sorry for the misunderstanding. Um, so, what, what my results show is that, um, and, and other people's results show that electrical coupling can support antiphase behavior too, or other asynchronous patterns too depends on the phase response curve uh-huh. specifically. And also I've done some work on rectifying uh, gap jump, because rectifying electrical coupling. And um, depending on the time scale of the, the rectification, you can get different types of results. Fast rectification in certain contexts seems to promote antiphase behavior, depending on the, the degree of rectification. Um, so, so other than this uh, uh, in-phase and anti-phase states, Mathematically, what's the uh, explanation for realizing uh, asynchronous state, other phase locked states? Not phase locked, I mean asynchronous or phase drift states. What, uh, could you repeat the question? I mean, 
So you have in-phase and anti-phase states yeah. that are stable, um, or at least they exist. But the asynchronous state, how do you explain mathematically? Can I say something about terminology? Because yeah, I think that um, sometimes we say synchrony in in ordinary language. We say synchrony when we mean two things are phase locked. But in this case, synchrony is a very special case of phase locking at zero phase, mm -hmm. zero almost, right. uh -huh. and that all other kind of phase lockings are called anti-synchronized or desynchronized or unsynchronized and that sounds weird at first when you're just thinking about two cells but to, to sort it out just think about a third cell how's the third cell gonna phase lock with those two if they're not synchronous with each other and it becomes quite easy to see that any kind of phase locking other than synchrony is going to be a mess when there's more than two cells it's going to be not synchronous. It's going to be impossible for a group of cells to phase lock with each other if all of their connections make them want to phase lock at something other than zero. Mm -hmm. Well, you can, you can have clustered states. You can, but you would call those asynchronous. That would be your definition of that. <laughs> I would call and so I'm just trying to straighten out the yeah, words. Yeah. Because clustered states, traveling waves, all those things that we would normally think of as not disorganized, are still called asynchronous by in this terminology. Yeah, you're right. The, the terminology that uses is a little sloppy. Okay, I hope that helps. Uh, right. So, uh, so we know from um, I'm trying to draw correlations between this kind of work with Kuramoto kind of oscillator uh, work. Mm -hmm. um, in identical Kuramoto coupled oscillators, you don't get anything other than synchronous state because they're identical oscillators. No, but. Um, so that's not quite quite true. Um, the, the reason why they synchronize is because the interaction function, right. the H function, uh -huh. yeah. which, which is a uh, basically convolution between the phase response curve and the synaptic input, whether it's electrical or, or chemical, mm -hmm. that function is modeled as a sinusoid. Right. Okay. That's the original. And that's, <coughs> and that's why Kuramoto. Right. Right. So in in the context of the Kuramoto, that function, mm -hmm. sine function. So now. And I'm trying to talk about the connectivity. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, so if you, if you take identical oscillators, they can only synchronize in that framework. But if you connect them, say, um, with uh, in, in a ring, for example, periodic boundaries, mm -hmm. then um, and the coupling is non-local, they have shown something called chimera states, which you probably know. Uh, so where part, some of the uh, oscillators are synchronized and some of the oscillators are not synchronized. They just drift. The, the relative phases just keep drifting. So I'm wondering if there is any kind of uh, attempt with weakly coupled identical oscillators and neurons to realize that, that those kinds of states where we have synchronous as well as asynchronous states. So, so the phase, the phase oscillator, the Kuramoto oscillators, yeah. um, you can think of as being some in some weakly coupled limit, right? Right. Right. So where where the this convolution of, of phase response curve and and coupling is is uh, looks approximately like a, a sinusoid, right? Uh -huh. So I guess my answer is um, is is 
Yes. It probably depends on the connectivity, I guess. Yeah. So this this is for um, homogeneous connectivity as um, well. Uh, they are coupled the, with non-local coupling. So yeah, one author just coupled with probably an exponentially decaying coupling strength on either side, and they're all coupled in a ring. Mm -hmm. And uh, that seems to support these kinds of mixed states. Whereas in, in, in two couples, uh, weakly coupled neurons... Without noise. This without, is, without noise. noise course, yeah, without, without noise. noise. Right. Whereas in two weakly coupled neurons, you can only get in-phase or anti-phase. And some of your simulations seem to suggest that they might be asynchronous or phase drift states as well. Um, when you include heterogeneity or noise. I see. So is that, is that essential? Heterogeneity and noise is essential to achieve asynchronous state in two coupled neurons? Uh, so again, it's a, a, this definition of what asynchrony yeah. is. Right. So you can... Um, so with two oscillators, two coupled oscillators alone, you can get two identical coupled oscillators. You can get asynchronous phase lock states, mm -hmm. um, but you can never get drift. You, you never by by drift. Do you, do you mean they um, they never quite reach a phase lock state? No. So so you can mathematically prove that two oscillators that are homogeneous uh, and and uh, have the same have bidirectional coupling of the same same type uh, same strength. You have to reach a stable phase lock state. Okay. You have multiple stable steady states, but the system phase will attain one of those. Okay. So it's so the phase drift is never achieved. No. Okay. You have to include sufficient heterogeneity. Okay. Roma. Oh, just sort of backing away from this a little simpler question. Something that's something that's confused me, not confused me so much as would like an answer to it is that you almost invariably find electrical connections. So the connection basically, and coupling is electrical, so you have pure conductance, as opposed to RC, resistive capacitor coupling. So is that sort of, I mean, when you're talking about weakly coupled oscillators, is that necessary? I mean, do you, do you need electrical connections, or can you also do it with, say, RC coupled elements? Uh, do you need? Bi um, so biologically? Yeah, well, well, the reason being that, I mean, for example, I mean, another system where, which in fact, in my opinion, show really nice oscillations, much better than you see elsewhere. Is this electric in electric fish, for example, mm -hmm. which you know, mm -hmm. the extremely, I mean, very robust oscillations, mm -hmm. and the pacemaker nuclei are essentially all electrically coupled. Yeah. So there's always been this controversy: is is this an intrinsic biophysical phenomena, or is it just at the level of the cell, or is it is it just simply a coupling phenomena that gives rise to you know really nice robust oscillations? So I was just wondering. I mean, is there any is there any theoretical difficulty in actually establishing an oscillatory network with anything other than a pure conductance? Oh no, not not, not at, all. at all. You can have any type you of have, you coupling. You just need your model of coupling, and uh, and then you you can implement. So the what theory. would happen just if as long you, as it's weak? As long as it's weak. So what would happen if, for example, you replace conductances with RC elements? Would it, is there any qualitative way in which it worked? I, I, I can't answer that question, but we could go and write down the model, right? See what, what, um, you know, what that in quotes G function right, looks right. like in the cell pair yeah. interaction. 
function and um, and that will so give us the for answer. example in effective connections should be mainly capacitated right yeah. that's kind of the sort of thing you're thinking about right 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 so yeah so what, what is there any difficulty in that is there I mean do you do you have you know are there any, I mean do we there know? are five models in the heart right? I mean, Big phase shift. Big phase shift. Big phase shift. <laughs> well, fibers fire in the heart by a peptic right? Yeah, I think that's well established. I mean, the gap junction coupling dominates, but they're synchronized with uh, bundles of uh, Purkinje's fibers. Right. right. I mean, it's 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 all started at the sinoatrial node, so it's just a way of actually travels down there. Mm -hmm. that, I'm not talking about that. I'm just saying that you have a, you have a loose network, and they are all coupled to one another. You know. But how is that coupling? Synaptic coupling. It could be anything. Oh, with synaptic coupling. It could be an RC coupling. Just it's or, any, any or 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 So so each cell it? creates a field mm -hmm. yeah. influence, and you could use you could use the theory with the double oscillators. Hmm. To, uh, to study that, you're just um, your current term uh, will, will be different. You need a model of that term, and then you could write down your equations. Well, it's no longer additive; it becomes convolutional, right? I guess, right? Because if you have an RC element, you, it's just not an additive term. No, we're not that's, necessary. That, that's okay. Yeah, that's not. That's okay. You could you could still you could still. Just as long no, as coupling is weak, you're good. But gap, strictly speaking, a gap junction is an RC. Um, no, strictly, in some, there is a capacitance across the gap junction. And so but that's really, really the membrane, though. It's, yeah. So, right. so I, I, when, when people say that, I don't always understand what they really mean because the way my interpret of my interpretation of that would be well, and a sodium channel is is an RC um, unit as well, but it's. We think of oh, those as resistors, and the gap junction is just a channel. Two membranes come really close to each other, they're, and so there is a capacitive current across one membrane and across the other. So if you make a very sudden change in voltage, you should expect to see capacitive Oh, because it's a bot instead of It's a quad layer. Because it's mm -hmm. very small, I suppose the capacitance is very small. Mm -hmm. yeah. But right. what you're imagining is just maybe a Larger, or larger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I was just, in, I was just thinking that whenever you see oscillators and network, oscillatory networks, you always invariably seem to see electrical USC connections. And so I was just wondering, is it sort of a, you know, does it pre, does it necessitate? I mean, is it a necessary condition? To apply the theory, or to have to connect No, in order to establish the theory, can come separately. <laughs> but the, in order to establish the oscillations, I mean, you know, from physical from physical principles. Oh, sorry, um, I misunderstood the question. I think the, the the oscillations don't have anything in quotes to do with the uh, with the coupling. No, 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 not the oscillations. I'm talking about establishing the phase locking. The phase locking, yeah, right, right. yeah, and any any type of coupling. What what um, should be okay? Should yeah. should be okay. Um, when, when people say um, the gap junctions have RC properties, they're usually talking about the low-pass filtering properties right. of it. And, th and that is not due to the capacitance right. RC properties of the gap junctions. It's due to the capacitance of the, uh, of the cell as well. Right. Hey, I'd like to thank everybody for being with us. This was fun. Thanks for being here. And this has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.